0: So this is Psalm 32, verse 1. A maskil of David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Saylah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You, thank You, thank You for giving us Your Word Thank you for the gathering of your redeemed people, Lord, that we can look to your word and just ask you, feed us, Lord. Open this psalm to us. Give us. Lord, give our soul just what it needs. Father, I'm just a little man. What can I do for Your wonderful people but You by the power of Your Spirit can take this word preached and apply it to the hearts of people and give just what is needed for the hour for each one here. Lord, for those who do not yet know of the joy in You, You can bring them to Yourself. For those who have lost the joy of their salvation, You could restore that unto them. Lord, for those who need conviction, you can convict. Father, we're asking that you, by your spirit, do supernatural things this morning, Lord. We didn't come here just to hear a nice speech from people. We want your word to be open to us and you to minister to us in the inner man. Please do that, Lord, through the weak little means of just preaching. Thank you, Lord. Help the hearing as well, Lord. All kinds of distractions, perhaps tiredness, perhaps just children. I pray, Lord, grant to your people, the ability to just hear and pay attention and click in, Lord God, and that you would, would give even a particular peacefulness to different children, and Lord, our, our, our tired minds, a particular alertness. Lord, we need your help in this hour. Please grant it. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen. So Psalm 32, if you don't got it open, then just turn to it. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you got a ESV, it says, the little title just says, Blessed are the Forgiven. So let's just dive in from verse one. It says, A Maskil of David. Obviously, David wrote this. He wrote it as a song, he wrote it for congregational singing. And he starts his song by saying, Blessed. If you've got an NASB, it says, How blessed. If you got a christian standard bible it says how joyful and if you've got a young's living translation it says oh the happiness of him so he's talking to a people that he expects because something's true about you you're going to be happy you're going to be joyful you're going to be blessed in the truest sense of the word not just little cheap kind of oh, I'm blessed. I got you know a promotion at work. That, that could be a blessing. But this is talking about the highest blessing and the cause for true abundant joy. And he says, Blessed, how happy, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Sin, covered, transgression, forgiven. This is supposed to make us be people that are profoundly joyful. Verse two, blessed, or if you wanna uh, supplement it or put it, put how joyful in verse two, it says, how joyful, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. So I just wanna go to this verse one thing, whose sin is covered. Now, Romans four is where Paul quotes this psalm it's always instructive and interesting to look at how the new testament writers quote the psalms and so when romans 4 is being written this is sometimes called the imputation uh romans 4, an imputation chapter because he uses this word for imputation uh logizomai 10 times and the idea of imputation is covering over sin or counting crediting sin Or crediting righteousness, and David, in his mind, is just looking at it from like the negative sense. Here he's saying, "Okay, your sin is is covered; it's it's hidden, and it's not counted against you." But in Romans four, it's so marvelous. That this is actually what's true about christians that not only is every disgusting horrible thing that i or you have ever done not being counted against you so your sins hidden your sins covered but positively the righteousness of jesus is being credited to your account it's a scandalous kind of thing to like people stumble over this like you are telling me that jesus had to be treated On the cross as though he did what I did so that I can be treated as though I did what he did that God would look at me and say I don't see that sin anymore it's totally covered it's totally hidden I I don't know what you're talking about that if the slanderer were to bring up an accusation say look at that Christian look how he just keeps on falling God can, by the miracle, the grace of imputation, imputed righteousness, sin totally covered and instead righteousness credited, clothed in righteousness, as it were, that God the Father can look at a Christian and say, I don't know what you're talking about, slanderer. I I hear no accusation against them. That's kind of hard to embrace and accept if you've had maybe a pretty bad week a Christian even if you've had a pretty bad week if you've had a subpar week if you can think of different areas that you've just messed up you fumbled the ball you've dropped it you have not done what you knew you ought to do you sinned by commission in doing wickedness or thinking wickedness or speaking wickedness or you just didn't sins of omission you didn't do what you know you should have done yet still You can be in this room this morning and say, I'm so happy. I'm so joyful because my position in Christ is that he doesn't just look at my performance and say, oh, you had a good day? I'm happy with you. You had a bad day? I'm displeased. We can think like that. We really can. I know I can. I can have that tendency to look at, well, is God really happy with me or because I sinned in this way? Um... I have to kind of scrape my way back to him and I have to put myself in the penalty box and I have to sit and afflict myself and, you know, kind of whip myself. I don't have to, I can go right to God and sin covered and I could be happy. I could be joyful. Verse two, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts, no iniquity, none. So I want to just briefly, uh, Bring the context here to just David. I mean, David is a guy who has some pretty wild career blunders. I mean, he's the man after God's own heart. And the biggest one, what do you think the biggest one that everyone's going to reference is? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. So, the occasion for writing, we know David wrote it. When's he writing this? Why is he writing this? We don't have it tied to a specific thing. It could have been. Like right after he writes Psalm 51, this could be the one following it where he's lamenting his sin and then it comes back and it's like God has heard his prayer in Psalm 51 where he's saying, oh, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation and then I'll teach transgressors. And now Psalm 32, it seems like it could fit. But another occasion for David's sin, who can think of another occasion where David just really dropped the ball horribly? the census, the census. He numbers the the troops in Israel, and I think it's Joab, and he's like, David, why are you doing this? Don't do this. It was like loathsome to him that Dave would do such a thing. And so how long you reckon uh, the census took to count all those troops in Israel? A long time. There's, 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 it's probably about 10 months. People say that it took about 10 months. That's 10 months of David having the opportunity to call the thing off and say, never mind, forget this. This is wrong. But he keeps on doing it. With Bathsheba, how long? You think he covered that up? Months. It was not just a oh, I've made a horrible mistake, but this was a season of sin that David had. And that's kind of just like the, the first point that we see here in uh the psalm is well, the first point is just that Christians are a forgiven people, and so we're glad. But this the sobering and sad reality is that Christians are people that do sin and sometimes even have seasons of sin. Seasons of sin. And in no way do I want to say that as like, oh, you know, no big deal. Christians have seasons of sin. It's absolutely grievous when Christians have seasons of sin. There are consequences when Christians have seasons of sin. But the sad reality is that even though in Christ we have everything we need for life and godliness, still Christians have seasons of sin. David did. The Bathsheba thing, several months of deceit. In verse 2, you said, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. David knows what it's like to cover things up. He's saying, blessed is a person who God has covered his sin and how unblessed it is when you try to cover your sin. When you're lying, you're living a double life. You're trying to you have deceit in your spirit. You're you're lying to other people. You're lying to yourself. He he knows what that feels like with the Bathsheba thing. He knows what that feels like with the census thing. That he's done this this wrong thing. You think joy? David had a bunch of joy while he was having that census conducted. I think he probably had just a gnawing at his conscious. He he, he was, I don't think he was writing any Psalms during that time. I'll, I'll tell you that much. And then there's one last occasion for writing that this perhaps could be associated with another blunder in David's career. Anyone have any ideas? We already got Bathsheba. We already got the census, but what's one other absolute blunder in David's career? The Absalom thing, that was that was more of a quick one, but yeah, definitely, that was a blunder. The one I'm thinking of, and I'll give a moment, anyone else? Ziklag, who knows what happened at Ziklag? They, I can't believe that this happened. I, I forgot about this as I'm reading this out. I'm like, oh my goodness, David did this? I don't don't want to go on like an extreme tangent here, but I just want to give different occasions that this could have been written in um, and just flesh out how, how David, it wasn't just the Bathsheba thing. And then David had this spotless career besides the Bathsheba thing. There were multiple instances of David covering sin, doing something that stretched for weeks and months of just the wrong move, the wrong move. Ziklag, David's on the run from Saul for like eight years. And at some point, he he basically, the sense I get is that he just gives up. He's like, well, if I go live in this heathen city, maybe Saul will just stop pursuing me. And it did, it, it worked, but it wasn't God's perfect will for him. He went over there and he lives in the midst of the like the Philistine king of, of, of Gath. This is like super, it's like, Suddenly, James packing up and saying, like, you know, I'm just going to go live in Las Vegas or something. It's just so out of character. It's like, wait, what? David, you're living amongst the Philistines. And he does this for a year and four months. It tells us specifically that he lived in the midst of, like, the enemies for a year and four months. And by the end of it, he's prepared to go out to battle against Saul and fight against his kinsmen. Like, I just forgot that this actually happened in David's career, that he got that far into compromise, that he was ready to fight against his own people. And this is something that stretched his living in Ziklag for a year and four months. So back to verse two, said, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So no hiding no lying to others, no lying to yourself, no justifying and saying, Oh, it's it's not so bad. It's okay. Sin has a deceitfulness about it, doesn't it? You see that in Hebrews three, don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It takes you so far. I don't think David ever imagined that he would get to the point. When he first went to Ziklag, I don't think he was like, you know, at some point the end the end of this, the culmination of this is that I'm gonna be ready to go out against my people in battle. He at one point was so fearful that he wouldn't even like cut the, he, he felt afflicted in his conscience about like cutting the little robe of Saul. He wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. And now he's prepared to go out against his people. Sin is so deceitful. It takes you so far. And he's saying, blessed is the person who there's, there's no deceit in your spirit. You're not trying to cover it up. You're not running from God. You're not hiding from God it's just out in the open. So transitioning just to verse three in Psalm 32, he says, "'For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer.'" Selah. So I thought it was super interesting to kind of compare where David is in his season of hiding sin and kind of running from God and trying to cover up his tracks, whatever the occasion was, whether the Bathsheba, the sentence, the census thing, or the Ziklag thing, he's he's hiding, he's covering, there's deceit in his spirit. And it says, I kept silent. Now, I don't think that means he was mute, but I think it means he was silent in prayer. He wasn't being real with God. It was hindering his prayer life. I don't get the sense that during that season, David was sitting there writing a bunch of Psalms and just feeling so inspired and joyous and like, oh, you know, I just got to write something today. I feel the spirit inspiring me to just reflect on the joy of my salvation. No, he was, he was silent in prayer. I'm suspecting he was silent in worship and he was certainly silent in confession. He kept silent. He was not being real and open and honest with God about his sin. And he says, I kept silent. And during this period of time, the season of sin and deceit and lying and covering it up, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. This was having physical effects on David. Hidden sin covering your tracks, not being real. It does something at a body level. He, he. I don't think it's just poetic language here. He says, "For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up, as by the heat of summer." Selah. You compare this to what David has experienced in the past. In the past, in Second Samuel twenty-two slash Psalm eighteen, he says things like this. Listen to what David says about just how much God met him with strength in comparison to what his sin has reduced him to. Listen to second Samuel 22 uh, verses 30. He says, "For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God, I can leap over a wall." Verse 34, He made my feet like the feet of a deer. Verse 35. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze verse 40, for you equipped me with strength for battle. So David knows what it's like when the favor of God is shining upon him to give him victory over his enemies. And then sin reduces him to the place in verses three and four, where he's saying, when I kept silent, when I wasn't confessing my sin, when I wasn't being real with God about where I was at, my bones were wasting away through my groaning all day long. This wasn't just a pop of conviction. This was a day and night inescapable thing. And you know what? What a gift. What a gift. It says that this was God that was doing this to him. It says for day and night, verse four, your hand was heavy upon me. What a gift Brethren, that God makes it so that Christians cannot just happily, numbly go about in sin and feel nothing about it and just feel like, oh, you know, no big deal here. That's so scary when you can do that, when you can sin for months on end and you don't feel nothing about it. You don't feel bad about it. It is an absolute blessing that God should put his hand heavy on a converted person and make them feel during seasons of sin where they're being silent, they're not confessing, they're not being real with God about it, and he makes their life miserable. You ever experienced that? Praise God if you've experienced that. Have you ever not experienced that? Do you remember when you were lost and you could sin and feel you enjoyed it. You actually liked it. You're like, what's wrong with this? There's a real sobering verse from Proverbs 30, 20, and it's talking about an adulteress, but I think it has parallels with other kinds of sin. But it says, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. There's just justification. There's like, this is fine. No big deal. I don't feel any affliction in my conscience about this. That's what a pre-conversion person is like. They're not afflicted by sin, but afterwards, after God saves a person, they cannot keep on sinning without feeling miserable about it. And praise God, because sin is toxic. It kills you. It, when it's full grown, it produces Death and God does not let His children keep on in that. Listen real quickly, just to some New Testament parallels to this. We got in 1 John five eighteen. It says, "We know that everyone who has born of God, who has been born of God, does not keep on sinning. They just don't. They can't." First <laughs> John three nine says that they can't says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Cannot keep on sinning. Praise God that one of the means he uses to keep Christians in the right place is making them miserable where they're in the wrong place. Praise God. That's godly sorrow. How do we know it's godly sorrow? Because it produces repentance. We see this with David. Verses three and four. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He's feeling this in his body. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. And then verse five hits and everything changes. I like that it says Selah at the end of verse four there because I'm getting the idea that the chords in verse three and four are not major. It's not like, your hand was heavy upon me. He was not like singing all jovially and glad. This is a song. And I think the musical arrangement reflected the fact that this was bitter times for David. And when he's wanting congregational singing associated with it, he's going to make the music sound pretty somber and sad during verses three and four. But then Selah happens and it's a pause for reflection but might it be that this is also a pause for a, a shift of the instrumentation a shift of the musicians all right we're picking up something different now we're, we're going to play something lighter something that reflects what's right about to happen in verse 5 so after the Selah, verse 4 we get into verse 5 and he just says i i acknowledge my sin to you simple as that i acknowledge my sin i stopped being silent I stopped hiding it. I stopped covering it. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. No more deceit. No more silence. No more hiding things. He brought it out into the light. I said, I'm not covering this up anymore. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He goes, he does that. And just like just like that, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave you forgave the iniquity of my sin these are major chords i'm guessing i confessed and he forgave no complicated process here no weird religious hoops to jump through i just went and brought my sin out into the open before god and said yeah i'm guilty i've messed up i've made a mess of things, and I'm not going to try to hide that anymore, God. Here you go. Here's my mess. I confessed, you forgave. And he felt it. He felt the catharsis. He felt released. The heaviness that was on him while he was covering the sin up, while he was hiding from God instead of hiding in God, all that heaviness just lifted. And you'll see this in the upcoming verses, but it parallel so beautifully with the New Testament in First John 1, 9. You already probably know where I'm going here, but First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. All of it. What are we doing in, in 1 John 1, 9? We're barely doing anything. We're just admitting to God. We're agreeing with God about our sin. All right, yeah, I confess. I'm guilty. I, I've messed up horribly. It's so simple. Christian life is so simple. You just go to God in sincerity and humility. You don't try to hide it. You don't try to be perfect. You just agree with God about your pitiful condition and say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. You see that in verse 5 and in First John 1 John 1.9. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. How extremely liberating. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but... He who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy, will obtain mercy. So it can't just be the confession. And I don't think David, he's not being like extra, extra thorough here, uh, but he's just emphasizing the confession aspect. And I guess by implication, he's like, yeah, I'm going to confess and I'm not going to go right back to it. It's confessing and forsaking. I do think that there's a weird kind of pressure release valve that people can sometimes look for by just confessing the sin. I got out in the open. I'm not hiding. I'm being real about what I'm struggling with. You'll go to some brother or some sister and confess some sin and feel a little bit relieved that, okay, I'm not hiding. I put it out there, but then it's not forsaken. You've, you've still held on to it. You've just, you're not hiding it. Good, but you're not leaving it. Confess and forsake. He who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So it's confession and forsaking the sin. But David did that after that long season of just feeling the heaviness of hidden, unconfessed sin. It's a reality in Christians. Sadly, I wish it wasn't. I wish it was like we got regenerated and there was never a season of sin that marked the Christian's life. I But you know, you know, from experience, sometimes your sin isn't just a one day thing. Sometimes it's like you, pl- you nose dive, you plummet, you're depressed. You don't even want to get up. You just feel that heaviness. You feel, I mean, before I got saved, I was just, pfft. I was depressed. There's a heaviness that's associated with sin. And sometimes even as converted people, we can have those seasons of sin and God just makes it so that it's miserable. But David acknowledges his sin. He doesn't cover it up anymore. He brings it to God. He brings everything out into the open. And then the mood changes. And we get into verse six. And then he, he, he pivots. He pivots from just, you know, this being a thing about him to he's inviting other people. It says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you meet when you may be found. And by implication, it's a prayer of confession. Therefore, let everyone who is godly, this is what godly people do. They confess, they offer prayer to God. They come to him and they acknowledge what they've done wrong. They don't persist in this state of having an afflicted conscience not forever. They eventually get to the point where the heaviness just drives them to finally pray and repent. Finally, be sincere with God and offer to him prayer. And it says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, when you may be found. There's like an urgency about it saying, yeah, pray now. Pray at a time when God may be found. What if you don't get the opportunity to repent? How many people do you know that sin took their life? Sin Kills in the slow spiritual sense and sometimes particularly with drugs. This thing kills people. They don't have time to repent. They, they, the time is up for them. Offer prayer of confession, of forsaking, of repentance at a time when you may be found. I love the accessibility of God there in that little phrase when you may be found. Even though our sins have created this big breach and separation, it's as simple as going home. When the prodigal son went to return, he didn't find that his dad had left and packed up or that the doors were barred. It's like he could find his way back. He knew the way back. And if you're a Christian and you're still here, this morning and maybe listen i don't know i'm not going to assume that just because you're a christian that's spiritual enough to wake up and come to sunday school that you might not have some hidden thing that you're just showing up in the building with a happy face but then you leave here and you've got stuff that you're hiding hiding from other people hiding from god it's 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 like you're in the garden and you've run and you've covered yourself up and you're just not being real with god i'd say Come to him at a time when he may be found, like today, like get real with God today. If you know, if you're sitting here, I don't want to assume that everyone in this room because they came to Sunday school is just oh good. No, this doesn't apply. Christians sin. It's horrible and heartbreaking that it's true, but Christians sin. Don't doubt your salvation because you're sinning. Just run to God and say, Please forgive me. I've sinned. I've I've messed up at a time when you may be found he's he's going to be found by you if you seek him he's going to let himself be found but that sin that sin for as long as you just keep on keeping it in the dark keeping it hidden not agreeing with God about how bad it is it's going to it's going to create such a breach of fellowship such a lack of joy and that is not the will of God for the Christian life he he wants us to be joyful confessing out in the open humble not hiding sin just bringing it before god and being found by him feeling like oh i've 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 come home i'm 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 restored into that joy of my salvation christians don't lose their salvation but you better believe that you can lose the joy of your salvation because of a season of unrepentant unconfessed hidden sin. That's a joy killer that destroys joy. Get it out in the open. Offer prayer to him at a time when he may be found. Then he says, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. David just loves that imagery, rush of waters and floods and torrents. It's used figuratively for like calamity or judgment or anger. He uh, he does it in 2 Samuel Twenty-two again, Second Samuel twenty-two five. He says, "For the waves of death encompassed me; the torrents of destruction assailed me." And then Second Samuel twenty-two seventeen. He says, "He sent from on high; he took me; he drew me out of many waters." So, waters here, or the rush of great waters, figuratively used for judgment or calamity or the anger of God, says, just offer prayer of confession to God, and then surely in the rush of great waters, they'll, they'll not reach him. Going to verse 7, it says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. If you've got a King James Version, it says songs of deliverance. If you've got a Christian, standard Bible or Holman Christian standard Bible. It says, you surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. You just see the parallel there. You see the difference. He goes from groaning all day long in verse three and just being dried up and quiet. The only sounds he's making are just groaning, just sadness. And then after verse five happens, he's 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 at this place where he's saying in verse seven, instead of hiding from you, I'm hiding in you. I'm not running away from you to try to hide like in the garden. I'm just running towards you and you're a hiding place for me. You're a refuge of safety for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance or joyful shouts of deliverance. So the mood just totally changes when you confess sin and get it out in the open. And that joy of your salvation is restored. But verse 8 pivots and some translations here and some like, commentators and stuff they they shift from david speaking to god speaking i'll just be honest i don't know why they they do that in verse 8 says i will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go i will counsel you with some translations your bible will say my capital my eye upon you as though now this is the voice of god speaking saying i will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go i will counsel you the lord speaking with my eye upon you Honestly, I don't know why that's there. Not every uh, translation uh, decides to capitalize that my or shift to like the voice of God speaking here. In my estimation, this flows more naturally to just consider that this is David in verse eight saying, now that I'm out of this season of sin, Let me talk to you. Let me teach you. Learn from my experience. I will counsel you. I will instruct you. I'll teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And if you look, uh, you don't got to turn there real quick, but this is his prayer basically In, in Psalm 51. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So it seems to me like David got what he was asking for. Like David is just now out of this season of sin. He's, he's got the joy of his salvation restored unto him and he's now ready to be a benefit to people. So that's one of the points here is that Christians do have seasons of sin But Christians repent from seasons of sin, and then Christians find usefulness after they repent of seasons of sin. They're able to go to other people, and what the enemy meant for evil, God could use for good. Because you, with a certain tone of your voice and a certain look on your face, can say, Don't do what I did. Please don't do what I did. You who have fallen into sexual sin can look at someone Who is in that same sin and stare at them with a certain look in your eyes, not of condemnation, but of empathy and say, don't do what I did. Don't do that. I think that's what's going on here with David, that he's he's saying, I'll instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. Then what's the counsel? Verse nine. Don't be like a beast. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be. Curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. That's the effect of, of, of sin. It takes away your sense, your reasoning. You become animalistic. You're not thinking clearly. <laughs> that stupid sinners or uh, Snickers commercial where it's like you're not you when you're hungry. You are not thinking clearly when sin is just in your mind's eye, and you're just pursuing it. You're not counting the cost. You're you're acting like a beast. And he's saying, don't do that. You want you want to hear what I have to teach you after my season of sin? I'll I'll instruct you. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like that. You don't have to. Especially not us as New Testament people who have the indwelling spirit. Don't be like a horse or a mule. Don't be animalistic. That's what you've been saved from. Before, you used to go about like unreasoning beasts. I mean, the book of Jude in Jude one ten talks about false teachers who infiltrate the church, and he's saying they're like they're like beasts. Nebuchadnezzar is like this. He gets humbled. He acts like a beast. Psalm 73, 22, Asaph says it. He was always brutish. I was like a beast. Sin does this. And David is telling us, don't be like that. Don't be like an animal without understanding. This is what sin does to people. You see it in the world out there. I mean, you ever look at just like a a big group of people reveling, partying at like festivals or clubs. There's an unrestrained, unreasoning attitude. Sometimes the people aren't even on drugs or drunk. It's just the party spirit, making people behave like shameful, unreasoning beasts. And I've done it, so I'm not sitting there like, Looking down at them, like, oh, look at those filthy sinners. I was there. David could say that he was there. I don't think he's talking condescendingly. He was saying, oh, don't be like a horse or a mule, stupid sinner. Why are you doing that? I think he's saying more, don't be like me. I was like this. I was brutish. I was dumb. I didn't have understanding. I did things that were just senseless and unreasonable in my season of unrepentant sin. Don't Don't be like me. Don't be like I was. And then he talks about what these kind of sins of unreasoning, stupid, animalistic kind of... It says you need to be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. You need all this external stuff just to keep you in line. You need all this forceful stuff. And David doesn't want us like that. God doesn't want... I mean, think about beasts. You have to literally put... This bit and bridle in their head. And if you want them to go a direction, you have to yank at it. And now, if it's a really trained horse or really trained animal, you just need a little nudge. But other animals, it's like they're just so stubborn that you have to yank at them to even get them to do what you want. And David's saying, don't let sin make you like that, where you need some awful, painful thing to happen to you for you to even go back to God. It doesn't need to be like that. You don't need to have sin bring you to this crashing point where these big, painful consequences come into your life, and only then do you run back to God. He's counseling us, don't be like that. Just go back, go to God and get it out in the open and you could avoid yourself lots of the pain. Now, there will be consequences probably. Sometimes God is extremely gracious and there's you don't got a lot of scrapes on you, but sometimes there's some real marks on you from seasons of unrepentant sin. And David doesn't want that to happen. God doesn't want that to happen. He'll do it in love. He disciplines those he loves. Sometimes you got some discipline marks on you but he's saying don't be like that don't need this bit and bridle be not like a horse but be like a little sheep where it's like you're riding your staff they comfort me you're you're not having to crack me over the head because i'm so goat like so horse like so stubborn and neighing and flailing around but just like a little sheep that just a poke of 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 the staff and you're you're going the right direction or even just just a voice just that my sheep know my voice and they come to me they follow me That's, I think as we mature in the Lord, we need less and less external stuff, less and less sharp beatings on the head with a staff or a bit or a bridle. And the Lord can just just give a whisper of conviction or a whisper of, no, not that, not that way, not that. Come, come back, come, get close to me, get close to me. It's a mark of immaturity and unreasoning when you need this bit and bridle. But even David, I don't want to shame you and stuff. Even David, a man after God's own heart, he needed things to get to a pretty radical point before he finally did. But he doesn't want that to be the case for us. He's counseling us and instructing us and teaching us and saying, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Verse 10, David says, many... the sorrows of the wicked. He knows that firsthand. He's seen it in his own life. I don't think David could be classified as a wicked man, but he behaved wickedly at different points. But he knows that for the wicked, that fun don't last. That fun dries up. There's sorrows. It's so short-lived. It's like the metaphor for sin that I like is that it leaves you with a hangover. It's fun for, for a minute. You're having those first couple of drinks of the evening. You're like, oh, this is fun, music. And then next day comes and you're like, you're, you're wrecked. You're hungover. Sin is not without its sorrows and consequences. Sitting over the toilet, vomiting. Sin reduces you to such shameful, just on the ground filth. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And then verse 11, we're getting to our applications here. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Be glad, why? Because you had like the perfect week or because you're the perfect Christian and you're always, you're just out here killing it. You, you don't fall into sin ever. Uh, No, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart, because God's made a way for you, because you have imputation as reality, because verse one and two are real. Your sins covered by Jesus. If you just go to him and confess it, the joy comes back. The will of God for Christians is not that they walk around constantly harassed with the gnawing in their conscience of, I'm not doing good enough. I'm not performing right. I keep on struggling with sin. God wants us to be radiant people. How blessed and how glad you can be in the Lord and how you ought to obey verse 11 and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's what David wants us to get to. He has these happy bookends of verse one and two, and then verse 11. And he's saying, Oh, you're so blessed. You're so joyful because of your transgressions being forgiven and covered. This is what should mark the Christian life. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Joy. And it's not like just a put on fake forced smile of like, Oh, yeah, everything's good. Everything's fine. But it's sincere. And it's not contingent upon just the perfect circumstances. It's resting on the steadiness of. I'm actually righteous in Christ. God has really made a way for someone like me who even after conversion messes up so much. Even this week, family, <laughs> I didn't have the perfect week this week. I'll lay my sin out. I, I, I struggle with Spotify and YouTube. I struggle with being curious. Oh, what kind of music is the world putting out? What kind of this or that is going on on the internet? I, but if, if I sat there and let those things just eat at me, if I sat there and said, oh, it's no big deal. I don't need to confess that before God. Um, then I wouldn't be able to be here and have joy. But I, I did. I went to God. I'm like, God, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I And you can do that too. You don't have to like afflict yourself with joylessness and not really sing the songs full heartedly because you feel like a hypocrite. You can right now. Get your sin out in the open from maybe the week or maybe just this morning. Maybe literally this morning you've done something that gnaws at your conscience and saps you of joy that can end as simply as if you'll just apply verse 5. I just acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover it up. You don't have to confess to your brother or sister unless you feel led to. You could just talk to God in the quiet of your heart and say, Lord, let me sing these songs and mean them. Let me have a volume increase. Let me shout for joy because of how I can rest in what you've done for me. That's what we're being told. That's the imperative here. We've got some imperatives here. And it's verse six says, offer prayer of confession. Therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayer. Then verse nine, our imperative is don't be like an animal. (laughs) Simple enough. We've already talked about that. But verse 11, the imperative, be glad, be glad in the Lord. It's it we don't bring God honor by being like sapped, heavy, sullen, miserable people. It's not I mean, you see this monkishness that can exist in, in Reformed circles of just like oh, I've just gotta be separate from the world and, and kinda be sad and this whole the ship is sinking. David's not content with that being the, the, the mood or the demeanor or the tone of the Christian life. He's saying, guys. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice because verse 1 and 2 are true. Your transgression is forgiven, your sin is covered. Jesus did it. How did any of this happen? Let me just read some verses. We know the gospel, but oh, it can it can get far away and feel like it's like taken for granted. Just listen to First to, to, to Peter 2:24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Listen to Isaiah. This is Isaiah sixty-one, ten. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Christian, your sin is totally covered. God's done it. You don't have to cover it. You don't have to hide it. It's absolutely finished and done by what Jesus did on the cross. He's covered us with alien righteousness. He's not covered you in the ability to be all perfect and righteous on your own, in your own merits. It's vicarious. He's clothed you in something that's not yours, so that when God the Father looks at you, you can actually say, I delight in you as much as I delight in my son. You believe that? If you do, you should sing so loud. You should be so happy. You should have a shoutingness that you're willing to do. You have room in your worship and your practice and your devotional life for shouting for joy. Given what's true about Christians, you should be able to shout. (laughs) I love that we got a a sanctioned thumbs up green light for, for when every now and again we have a, Sing it, brethren! I would love a whole lot more of that sometimes. And I don't do it because I don't want to be a distraction. But if I did what I feel like doing sometimes during that music, I'll tell you, I'll just be honest with you, sometimes I just feel like going i just feel so triumphant and victorious and glad that these things are true that it's real if the veil was removed for just a moment and we can see just how god thinks about us how much he loves us how much the righteousness of christ is imputed to us and our sins are totally covered we would just be uproarious we would be like david to where michael sees him and she's embarrassed she's like what are you doing you're rejoicing too much Could it be said of us, would it ever be said of us that someone passed by and said, they're singing in a way that's almost embarrassing. Listen, I'm not trying to tell you to put it on, but I'm just saying the joy has an expression. And in, 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 in David's mind, it's shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Rejoice, O righteous. He goes from groaning over unconfessed sin to just shouting. He's just lit up, he's so glad, because he knows the contrast. He knows what it feels like to be spiritually depressed, the heavy hand of God afflicting his conscience, making him miserable, and when he comes out of it, he's like, oh my goodness. What a difference. How glad I can be. I got to start writing again. I got to start writing psalms again. I got to start teaching sinners in the way that they can go in. I got to start getting useful for God again. He wastes no time. He's back at it writing psalms. And Christians, we could enter into that, can't we? We're a joyous people because we're a forgiven people. We do sin, but we repent. And then he restores to us the joy of our salvation. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you don't know what I'm talking about but I want you to know what I'm talking about. I want you to know how good it feels to to have your conscience clear. You know, if I died now, I wouldn't have to be afraid. I'd stand before my judge and my savior and he would say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest instead of depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If you're not a Christian this morning, just believe in Jesus, just come to him. He'll by no means cast you out if you just come to him in faith like a little child. Just talk to him about your sin, be real with him. Don't hide it, don't lie to yourself and say, oh, my sin's not that big of a deal. You're so deceived and hardened if you think that your sin's not a big deal. Your sin's such a big deal that the only way for God to fix it was for him to take it upon his own body on the tree and crush, be crushed so that you wouldn't have to be crushed. So that you could be forgiven, so that God the Father can look at you and say, I don't see anything wrong with this person. Nothing wrong at all. Perfectly, spotlessly righteous by imputation, by my crediting to your account the righteousness of my son. Christian, that's true of you. Unbeliever, let it be true of you today come come to Jesus, believe in him, believe in what he did on the cross. And you're going to be glad <laughs> you can get joyful today. You can have the chords change from minor to major and sing those songs like you really mean them. And Christians, reflect, say la, think about it. You're forgiven. You're good with God. You ought to sing and shout and be just radiant in your face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for imputation, credited righteousness. That you had to be credited, accounted, treated like someone who sinned the kind of sins that we've sinned, so that we could be accounted, credited, imputed, treated as righteous as you, Lord Jesus. It costs you so much to do this. What can we do but say thank you? Thank you so much for giving us alien righteousness. Lord, help us sing. Help us sing in a way that reflects how good this news really is. Help us not get tired of it. Help us not get used to it. Search us and know where the sin hides and help us get it out in the open so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the high call we've received. And part of a worthy walk is joy. We shouldn't be sad. We shouldn't be all afflicted. Help us, God. Give us joy. Give us the fruit of your Holy Spirit this morning by marking our singing with real joy, by marking our communion with real gratitude, by marking even our conversations with just a sense of, yeah, lots of stuff is going on in my world, but I'm forgiven. Praise God. I'm forgiven in the midst of all of the heavy stuff. I'm forgiven. And so I'm glad. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this morning looking into your word. Bless us as we continue. In Jesus' name I do pray, amen.